You, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Those are verses 9 through 12 of Psalm 97, which with Psalms 99 and 100 are the psalms appointed for today, Tuesday, August the 10th. 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our study in the life of David in 2 Samuel today, um, chapter 14, verses 1 to 20. Also, the life of Paul from the book of Acts, um, chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. And then in the gospel, according to Mark, chapter 10, the first 16 verses. So remember that, that David's son, Absalom, uh, had revenged his sister, Tamar, who had been raped by her half-brother Amnon by killing Amnon. And so then he went on the run, and he, so he was a fugitive because it, it, it was libel that somebody could kill him. Uh, there could be a blood avenger who would kill Absalom, and so Absalom goes on the run uh, to flee because it would, it would be rightful, according to the law, that somebody would kill him because he had murdered his brother. So to revenge that, somebody could have done that. So he's on the run, and David is heartbroken after he copes with Amnon's death. He's heartbroken about the loss, essentially, of his son Absalom, who can't come into Jerusalem because of the fear of a blood avenger. So Joab, who's the commander of the army, um, knew the king's heart went out to Absalom, and, and, and he wanted David's undivided attention. He wanted David to do the right thing so that, that his, his heart wouldn't be divided. And so Joab also must have believed at some level that, that Absalom was just in the revenge that he exacted on his brother Amnon. <clears throat> and so Joab sends to Tekoa, which is where Amos the prophet is from actually, and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Don't anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who's been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak to him thus. And then Joab tells her what to say. And it's interesting because frequently in the Old Testament particularly, what you'll get is here you would have seen Joab and all the words that he spoke, and then she would have gone and repeated them. But here the, the writer doesn't give us double <laughs> the the number of words. And so the woman goes to the king, falls on her face to the ground, and pays homage and says, Save me, O king. And he says, What's your problem? She said, Look, I'm a widow. My husband's dead. And your servant had two me, had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they said, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they're, they're looking to be blood avengers. Like I said, according to the law, they have perfect right to do this. That's the reason there were cities of refuge that were set up uh, initially in the land. And it was according to God's plan and according to his instruction to set up these cities of refuge where somebody in, who had accidentally killed, for instance, uh, or who had done so, first-degree murder is different because you've, you've planned it out and all that. And so this woman presents a case where it's not first-degree murder. Absalom's was, but here, th this one is, they quarreled, this happened, and he died. It's not a, a plan like Absalom made 
to kill his brother Amnon. And so, so she's concerned because she says, look, they, they want to come and kill this other son to avenge the death of the first one. And so they would destroy the heir also. So, so I'm not going to have anybody if they, if they come and kill the one who killed his brother. They would quench my coal that's left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. And the king said, go to your house and I'll give orders concerning you. And on the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. And David said, if anyone says anything to you, bring them to me. He shall never touch you again. She says, please let the king invoke the Lord our God, your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son be not destroyed. And David says, as the Lord lives, not, let not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And then the woman says, can I say one more thing? And David says, yeah. So she says, why have you planned such a thing against the people of God? In giving this decision, the king convicts himself for as much as the king does not bring his banished one home again, we must all die. We're like water spilled on the ground, which can't be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. And she's going to say something really powerful about David here. Now, I've come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, quote, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And this is the important thing. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. And then the Lord your God be with you. It's a strong and powerful statement. Because remember Solomon, you're, we're going to see in a while now, but but. Solomon, when he becomes king, God says, ask anything of me and I'll give it to you. And he says, I want wisdom. Well, that's exactly what this woman's saying David has, that he has wisdom to discern good and evil. Hmm, good and evil. Where have we heard that before? That goes back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from which Adam and Eve ate in the garden. And so here, what she's saying is, David, I believe that you have God's Holy Spirit so that you would absolutely know good and evil. You can make proper and right and just decisions in all matters because God gave you the ability to do that, David. So David answers and says, don't hide anything from me. And she says, okay, go ahead. And he says, Joab put you up to this, didn't he? Yes, he did. She says, I mean, in, in many more words than that, it was Joab who commanded me in order to change the course of things. Your servant Joab did this, and then she finishes it up. But, but whether Joab put me up to it or not, but my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. So she thinks highly of David, speaks highly of David, believes highly of David. And she says, look, we all need this to be at an end. I think we live in a society right now where there's some things we need to be in an end as well. And we need to, to be able to move forward as a country. But the division is so great. And it's caused by leaders on both sides. And so in here in this passage, though, she's saying we need this to end, David. We understand what happened, but, but we need to be able to move on because your attention is not given to the governance and to the leadership of Israel, and we need you to, to get this taken care of, David, and we need to move on. <clears throat> so in the gospel, 
Jesus leaves and goes to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. The king, and the crowds gathered to him again, and as was his custom, he taught them. The Pharisees come up and they want to know one thing. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus points to the law. He says, he, what did Moses command you? In other words, there's a law there. You needn't ask me about this. There is a law. Moses gave you a commandment concerning this. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to him, because the hardness of your hearts, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus is being clear here that Moses gave them a commandment that allowed them to do that, that allowed them to divorce their wives in this way. But Jesus says that is not God's intention or plan. The way it's intended to be is nothing would separate two who have become one in marriage. So he's looking at what we would say today is original intent, right? So when we talk about people who are constitutional lawyers or judges, we, we, we say, is this person, do they look to the original intent or are they reinterpreting? Does the original intent matter? And, and, and in today's world, the, the answer is no, because of deconstructionism. In, um, in literature, is it the original intent, the intent of the writer doesn't make any difference at all. It's only how I, the hearer, interpret that. And so it doesn't matter what you intended the meaning of a story to be. If that's not the meaning I get when I read it, then it doesn't matter what you intended. It's nice to know, but it spoke a different thing to me. And so that, that's kind of what Jesus is saying here is, is that Moses did this because you all were intent on getting divorced. And there, there had to be some process in place to deal with this. He said, but that was never God's original intent. It was, the father did not want divorce. So in the house, then, when they come to the house, the, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to him, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her and if she divorces her husband and marries another she commits adultery and then you could say add to that against him so it's it's a very clear teaching and it's the reason for a long long time that that you were not allowed to be ordained in most denominations if you had been divorced um i understand it i understand where we are today and i understand the practicalities and the purposes and the reasons but what we have to understand is that is not god's intention and so we need a lot of repentance for these things that, that we've taken too lightly. I mean, I've counseled too many couples to, to, know the, to, to deal with this any differently. You know, I, I counseled one couple, and the guy was having an affair with somebody else. Well, he had hidden it successfully until the divorce proceeding was filed. And when it was, um, then somebody came and told the wife about it. Well, they amended the complaint to include that because she went to her attorney and her attorney said, hey, can you get his email? She said, yep, I know his password. So she got him. And then he sued her under the Patriot Act because he said that she shouldn't have had access to that. She had to use a password to get access to his emails. Therefore, under the Patriot Act, she had committed some sort of a crime and she did so at the behest of her lawyer. So she's now unable to represent her in court because together he has sued them. So, I mean, it's just this hardness of heart that says, yes, I'm committing adultery, but the fact that you found out 
is a bigger problem than my adultery. Well, he ended up dropping the suit because a couple of men in the church went to him and said, you're just wrong, man, <laughs> in every sense of the word. And so, but, but his hardness of heart wouldn't allow him to repent of these things. It allowed him to, it, it, it enabled him, pushed him to continue to, to persevere, not only in that illicit relationship, but also to insist that they had committed a greater crime and a greater sin than he had under the law. Unbelievable. But I've seen it too often to know that, that too often we don't attach any stigma on the front end of this thing. And, and, and I'm not saying that we need to put a scarlet letter on somebody the rest of their lives. I'm saying, but in the front, on the front end, the church needs to be clear about this. And our church, in fact, was not clear about that. Because my feeling was we shouldn't be allowing him to come and take communion during this period of time because he's in an unrepentant, adulterous relationship and divorcing his wife at the same time. And the leadership said, no, that's he said, she said. And the answer is, no, it wasn't. There was no he said, she said to it. He, she, he was having an affair, and there was plenty of proof of that. And so it, it, I, I, was a, I was really, really disappointed in the church that, that, that they would not even hinder this man from coming to communion when he was failing to repent of, a, of an, an obvious and known and public sin. But, it, but we have a problem with this. Like I said, there doesn't need to be a stigma attached forever and ever to these things. But the reality is, is that we need repentance. We need to insist on repentance. We need to insist on sin. And, and that's a huge problem in the church today. And so that, then after this, they're bringing children to Jesus <clears throat> that he might touch them. And the disciples tried to kept, keep them away. It shows you something about the value of children in that society, they wouldn't even have thought about allowing these children to come to Jesus. And Jesus is not happy. He was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And it's, we, we, we need to be good about this. And I think most churches have gotten really good at, caring about children and raising up children and making sure children have access to the Lord and make sure that they're taught the right things. It's, but we've, we've, we need to deal with sin appropriately. And so I'm, I'm, the question is on that first one, though, in that first lesson from Second Samuel, is that dealing with sin appropriately for David to bring him back? And I think he does as best he can. It doesn't matter because Absalom's character is deeply, deeply flawed as we're going to see, but, but David, without Absalom, Absalom's going to plead his case, essentially, is the way it'll go, is, is he'll plead his case um, for why, what he did was, was right under the law, that he took revenge on his brother who wouldn't repent. So we've got all kinds of unrepentant sin in that family. Here in the Acts passage today, we've got a travelogue, essentially. Is Luke's going to tell us that they, they left from Ephesus, and they went to Kaz, and then the next day to Rhodes, and then from there to Patara, and then they found another ship, and they went to Phoenicia, and they came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, and sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship had to unload its cargo, and, and there they sought out the disciples and stayed with them for seven days. So Paul and Luke and the others stay there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Everybody's going to tell Paul not to go. When our days there were ended, we departed, went on our journey, and they and all their wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling on the beach, we prayed and said farewell. And then we got on the ship, and they went home. And then when we left Tyre, we went to Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. 
and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. One of the seven means he was one of the deacons that was made in the beginning of the early church when the dispute arose between the Hellenized widows and the Jewish widows, that the Jewish widows were, were receiving favoritism in the daily distribution of food. So this Philip in Caesarea is one of the seven, one of those deacons that they made at that time. And it says he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And that's the last we hear of them, which is odd. But uh, then it says, we stayed there many days. A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Paul, Paul, the Spirit's preventing you. Remember when he prevented you from going to Macedonia and when he called you to Macedonia? Remember all that? Yeah, well, this is, this is obviously a sign you're not supposed to go there. And Paul said, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he wouldn't be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. So it, it, it's, it wasn't a warning. It was just a truth that this was what was going to happen. But they interpreted it as a warning not to go, and yet Paul says, no, that's not a warning not to go. It's simply a prophecy of what will be, and that we need to be good at knowing the difference between those two things. Many times uh, across the course of my life, I've had people give prophetic words and say things like that to me and not understand the difference between a warning and a truth. You know, sometimes if you know a truth in advance, that's it's an unpleasant truth, you can prepare yourself mentally and emotionally for that eventual outcome. It's, it's important that we understand the difference between those two things. It's important that we follow the Spirit of the Lord, which is always speaking in concert with the Word of God. Just like in that gospel passage when Jesus says, yes, Moses gave you that commandment. But do you hear that? Moses gave you that commandment. And, and then went on to say, but it's not God's will. God's will is this. And that's the harder path. The harder path is staying together. The harder path is dealing with sin in our lives, dealing with sin in our relationships, and then moving forward together.